The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. So, yeah, so we're, 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 we're going to maybe use some of this on a uh, much-adored podcast, Gone by Lunch Show. Yep. Um, but otherwise, we'll be for a print piece. the title of that. Why? Oh, I see. That's the word we call our podcast, as yes. you know. Yes, as I know, it's but not, it is slightly worrying when I'm here for that. <laughs> um, well, Gone by 4 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> your approach so far is to um, be continued. So, My name is Toby Manhai and this is Gone By Lunchtime Extra, a special marking the first anniversary of that white smoke moment when Winston Peters appointed Jacinda Ardern the Pope of New Zealand. And as luck would have it, our guest star on this podcast special is Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, who popped into the Gone By Lunchtime studio on Wednesday morning. You can read the print version of this podcast at thespinoff.co.nz. As ever, a thousand thanks to our sponsors, Flick. Click through from any politics post on the spin-off and you can snag a sweet, sweet deal for your electricity. I started by asking the PM to cast her mind back to a year ago, the final days of coalition negotiations. Probably about a week out from that kind of press it's conference. Probably around Nine the time days. I found out I was pregnant, actually. Right. <laughs> yes. Oh wow! Well, there you go. Somewhere well, tell tell us about that day. <laughs> Another quiet oh, day. Look, I don't know how many details are necessary. Well, yeah. all as many as you're willing to. I mean, what I was going to ask is how how confident you were at that point, if you, if you of um, not oh, in, look, terms, not in had... terms of conception, but in terms of this. Um, in terms of. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. No idea. Absolutely none. You know, I've, you know, always said that it was actually the moment when, uh, well, actually, a, a, a minute or two before um, the now deputy prime minister made the announcement that I thought it was going our way, but not before that. Yeah. So you would have, if you were, um, if you inhaled some truth serum you would have gone 50 50 i would have gone 50 50 in fact you know we would every so often canvas the room because there were uh-huh. we had uh, uh, extra few extra people who were at the table with us um so um for a time annette king was with us for those negotiations and from time to time we'd canvas how do you think it's going and at most of the that negotiation period it was it was moving around 50 50 um and in the year since or i guess winding back even the campaign through and then the last year it's been non-stop I remember when I spoke to you at the start of the year and I said have you had a chance to kind of 
Flipped. Take it all in, and you yes. said you were planning to do that over summer, but then I did you not. decided to have a break instead over summer. <laughs> so the same question, really. I mean, it's like you've lived a few lifetimes in that. Yes. For normal persons, mm. civilian lifetimes yes. in that. Have you taken stock of it? No. No. And I know I haven't, because every so often I still catch myself um, uh, thinking, you know, in these, these little, you have these little brief moments when uh, sitting on the UN General Assembly floor, you know, a year ago, would I have seen myself in that position on behalf of New Zealand? No. So there are these still quite surreal moments. Uh, but but there's so little time for that. You know, no one no one wants to hear that I'm sitting there having these these moments. They want to know I'm just cracking on with the job. And so that's that's what I do. And do you when you when you are on the UN floor having that catch yourself moment do you have a sort of is it what how does that manifest itself is it a three second yeah about that fuck type moment or <laughs> oh no it? no just a really more an appreciation okay. because you know when you when you're someone uh, who's been interested in politics uh since you were 17 years old those those you know the the idea of being able to represent new zealand at that level um in that context at a time that's pretty heightened you know would I have imagined myself in that place absolutely not so I better yeah you know, spend a couple of seconds on it and then get on with it because you've got a speech to give or a or a or an interview to do or something something else that yeah. takes over takes over that little space and time yeah, yeah yeah but equally I have those moments knowing that I've got my three-month-old daughter next to me as well those there's lots of surprising things yeah. <laughs> that have happened in yeah. the last year so it's sort of a surreal for you sometimes yeah no it is yeah it is it is for- but actually, I've, um, uh, you know, one thing I will say is that uh, I think actually most political leaders find the idea of representing their country to a certain extent surreal. Yeah, because it is, there's, there's nowhere beyond that. So I don't think I'm alone on that. I just don't spend too much time thinking about it. The, the three-month-old daughter beside you is obviously an extra element of surreal, surreal <laughs> yes. isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's sort of, it's a cliche that... Um, having a child, becoming a parent, nothing can prepare you kind of practically or yes. emotionally for that. Yes. It's cliche because it's true. Yeah, you absolutely. really do. Yeah. So what, what, have, what, what for you are the things, whether in any part of your job or life that have sort of caught you by surprise or in terms of what you weren't expecting? It's how heightened uh, it's, it's made my focus on kids. Because I, I, I was already pretty, pretty focused on child well-being. Now there's this extra layer to it uh, that uh, I can only describe as being heightened. Um, when I think about you know, whether we're making sure that families have enough income to provide for their kids, I think about that in very literal terms now. Um, I think about how it would feel if I didn't feel like I could provide um, or we were able to provide properly for Neve, or how it would feel if I heard Neve was being bullied in school, or just these, it just heightens the way you view all of the things that I already cared about, but now has this extra layer of the personal to it. So now all those policies are going to be specifically focused on Neve? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but it, it, it really, it's reinforced for me the emphasis we were already placing on those issues. So, you know, I already already wanted to make sure that child poverty was a focus for us. Now I now I have that extra sentiment around it. In terms of the that crazy period and then all that happened that we don't need to rehearse, um, would you accept that the 
Labour was undercooked in terms of in terms of its readiness to be in government? No, no, I wouldn't. I, I think when people level that, um, it's it's quite closely connected to people's view that we shouldn't be looking outwardly and seeking, you know, the views of experts and in, in developing up some of the work that we're doing. And I really push back against that. Uh, I'll give you an example. Today we launched, we've just, you know, um, launched the work that we want, the new penalties uh, and rules we want to put around predatory lending. Uh, now, we've developed up those proposals, having gone out to people who work in budget advisory services and said, what's going to make the biggest difference for you? And we've come up with a scheme that basically means you'll never pay more than 100% of what you loan. Now, we could have actually come back and just done that ourselves without asking the question. We might have ended up with an interest cap, but it might not have been what the community wanted. So I don't think we should be defensive about talking to people. And yet when people level that criticism about being undercooked, that's often what they mean. Yeah, because because the argument goes that one of the roles of opposition isn't just to do the combat of holding to account stuff that you're talking about, but yep. also to develop policy. Absolutely. And the, 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 the now it appears as though a lot of that is being outsourced once in government rather than being totally Not at all. I mean, some of the things are straightforward, like we've got to do something about child poverty. So straight off the back, first 100 days, a package that we developed while we were in opposition. Um, I helped design the best start payment. There was the changes we made to working for families and the winter energy payment. We did all of that from opposition. We also recognised from opposition we needed to do a lot around mental health. So we came up with um, uh, rolling out nurses in schools because there was evidence behind that. But then at the same time, we heard from people who worked in the sector and they said, actually, we want you to come and talk to us before you go any further. So for us, it's always been about finding that balance between the two. Sometimes as well, you just don't have the resources from opposition. Great example is looking into abuse in state care. You, from opposition, you can't, you just can't safely roll out um, that piece of work. We needed to do that properly. These were people, highly vulnerable people. So I think we've got the balance right between the work that we've gone out and done alongside people and the work we did ourselves. One of the things you were um, majoring on in the campaign and, and once you became Prime Minister was climate change. And famously, you referred to it as the nuclear-free moment of a generation. Yeah. Um, upgraded my position on that a little bit. How uh, to be upgraded? <laughs> well, it seems that, that, that we were unified around the nuclear free movement, and yet what we're doing on climate change is just, it, it is. It is just that much much harder because it's a call to action for everyone. Um, and so I'm hoping we can get to the place of having that same unified moment around nuclear-free that so we do that we need for climate change. You mean change. in terms of bringing everyone on board? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. that's, a, that's a big deal. And I mean, I, I'll yeah. come to that in just one second because mm. the, 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 obviously there was the big IPCC report on Monday. Um, seismic in its yes. implications. Yep. We all know that. Um, yep. The kind of hellscape that awaits us yes. and other joyous things. I don't think they um, use that quite language, I, but well, yeah, essentially kind of between that's the, the lines. Between the lines. Yeah. Yep. Most of the week, you talked about it at the, at, the, at the UN as well, but you spent most of the week saying, how are we going to make it cheaper for people to burn petrol? It seems like a kind of weird juxtaposition that, you know? No, we've always, you know, first of all, looking at New Zealand's emissions profile, the biggest challenge for us is it actually sits in agriculture. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, our transport emissions profile 
Absolutely, we need to do work in that space, no doubt. That's why the excise that we generate is going into alternatives, uh, like, for instance, public transport options, rail to the airport, significant transport infrastructure that needs to be built. Um, That's why we have things like our excise. But at the same time, it needs to be a transition. And I can't deny that at the moment there are very few alternatives for people in large parts of our communities around alternative transport options. Now, we're trying to build those and quickly, um, but it's pretty jarring to in one year have a 40 cent increase. So that's what I'm acknowledging there. Um, at the same time, we do need to move. We've we've set all our goals around um, 1.5 degrees. We've said net zero carbon emissions by 2050. We're trying to legislate so and get universal buy-in so that we don't have uh, an electoral cycle disrupting our long-term plans. And I hope that we'll lead the world in the research we do around uh, food production because 50% of our emissions come from agriculture. We can model to the world what it takes to bring down methane. But relying on technology is not the way to go, is it? That's not the solution. Research and development is going to help us actually reduce down those emissions, not, not just... Not just offset, but and it, yeah, I think actually it is a significant part of the answer. You know, when, when the United States said they were going to the, go to the moon, uh, they didn't have the answer on how they were going to get there. They just set the goal. And so that's what we need to do for agriculture. We know, for instance, that um, feed, um, the way that we even graze, all of that can have an impact on our emissions profile. But there is more work to do. And if we figure out the IP for that, we'll have something to sell to the world. Um. In terms of that point you made before about getting everyone on board, I mean, I've spent a large part of my life trying to commission pieces and edit yes. newspapers and websites to try and make people read the stuff. But basically, I was going to say people don't give a toss, and that's not fair. That's yeah. not true. But it is really hard to, for, for whatever reason, it's really hard to get people on board. So how are you going to... Yeah. That's, a, that's probably the big... Yeah political challenge as it, well. It is, it? and it's huge. But but even if you think about that environment you were operating in 10 years ago, uh, I feel at least positive that we've moved significantly from a debate that 10 years ago was whether or not climate change was real, now to a debate around how much we need to do and how quickly. 10 years ago, I got booed at a public meeting for talking about climate change. You know, so the environment, when I first came into parliament, a select committee was established to look at the science of climate change. So now to have moved to where we've, you know, where I'm still hopeful that we'll get uh, political support from across the house for a zero carbon bill, I hope, you know, that's a, that's a big shift. So let's, so let's feel positive about that. We can also feel positive that we have a farming leadership group that I meet with on a semi-regular basis who is acknowledging that... Um, uh, that addressing climate change and what we do is imperative. Now, whether they're doing that from a branding perspective doesn't matter. The fact that we're all agreeing means that we've got a little bit of extra impetus. That means changing practice on the ground, though, and that's where it gets hard. Uh, we're developing, we have a tool, uh, for instance, Overseer, which enables us farm by farm to be able to uh, have um, farm management practice changes in the way that we operate taken into account so that people can even see if they're, if they're changing their emission profile at that individual level. Now, that's a powerful tool for behaviour change. We just need a little bit more of that happening. Um, the good news you had yesterday was the $5.5 billion surplus, yep. which was higher than expected. Um, 
And um, the argument that's made by Bernard Hickey. Yes. We'll call it the Bernard, Consistently. The Hickey Doctrine. Yes. Um, Borrow more. Borrow more. Yep. We'll get it, you know, money under 3%. Look at, you know, the, the sun yeah. is shining, fix the roof, and there is so much that can be done for infrastructure. There's so much to and be done. Are. Climate change, all, you know, uh, mental health, transport, housing, homelessness, all this stuff. Why don't you just really go for it? We are. I'm not saying you're not doing stuff, so yeah. accept it. Accept yeah. it, all that. Do double that. Yeah. So we are we are pushing out our debt track. We see the time it would take us to get debt down, uh, and it fluctuates. So what we've seen, you know, off this um, uh, these Crown Financial Accounts release yesterday, um, shows our debt track at a particular point. But there will be variation in that. We see the time it would take us to get uh, sustainably to 20% uh, is going to take us longer than the last government because we are borrowing more for the super fund and because we're borrowing more for KiwiBuild. Um, the issue we have with KiwiBuild is not the government's, uh, not our focus on building houses or lack of focus, it's just how quickly we can do it. Building 100,000 houses is pretty ambitious, and the struggle that we're having at the moment is finding the skills to do it, finding the companies to do it, um, finding the partnerships to deliver, and we are pulling out all of the stops, and that's that's the difficulty. As same with public and state housing, 6,400 we want to build, and that's really putting the squeeze on Housing New Zealand to be able to do that. So we, we are being pretty ambitious here, but we've got some other roadblocks in the way. We are also spending billions more than the last government. We are. Um, what we had come out yesterday was a snapshot in time. Uh, some of it's because um, spending that, we've, uh, that we were um, budgeting to, uh, to, to um, spend is rolling over into the, to the new year. It's been slightly delayed, so we need to take that into account. And also, we need to take into account that essentially we've got still pretty significant debt, $57 billion. It's come down a bit, but pretty significant debt. So we've always constantly trying to balance being ready for a rainy day, but like making the investment um, that we need now. You, I was reading back over um, uh, some interviews during the campaign immediately afterwards, and you used the word transformative a lot. Yeah. I haven't heard you use that lately. Maybe maybe I've missed it, but is, there, is that still the project? No, I have to used, be? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about what we're trying to do on stuff, that doesn't get as much coverage. First of all, having a government that says the housing market's broken, we're just going to build ourselves – um, that hasn't been done. Yes, we did it with state housing, but this is different. We are literally building houses um, in the market now for first home buyers because we failed them. Now, that's, that's a huge intervention to make and one the last government wasn't brave enough to do because it has risk attached. Um, the, the work that we've done on, you know, and this doesn't grab headlines, but the Reserve Bank and changing up monetary policy, the work that we've asked um, the tax working group to do to say, actually... We don't know whether we've got a fair tax system and you, we want you to look at what it'll take to change that. Those are significant changes. Equally, what we'll leave behind, I hope, regardless of who's in government, on child poverty um, and holding ourselves to account and on climate change has the ability to leave a legacy that will go beyond this government. You know, transformation does take a bit of time, though. You know, If there's anything I've learnt that I've struggled with, it's how long things take. And that's that's something that has been 
has been hard when you come in in a hurry. Would you like to see a four-year term on that point? I mean, I, I mean I, it's interesting. When I, ask, when I ask people about that, I mean, I, I'm yet to find someone that doesn't agree with the idea that actually there would be some merit in that. Um, yeah, it's not something we're, we're looking at. It's just because, you know, electoral reform like that takes quite a bit of cross-party buy-in. But, uh, yeah, it is fair to say three years feels short. Um, not when you're in opposition, though. It feels like an eternity. <laughs> Max Rashbrook wrote an yes. essay earlier this week for leading website, thespinoff.co.nz. Yes. And he um, was sort of looking for what, what might, how you might kind of articulate the philosophy of the government or whatever. And he, he, the, the best he could come up with was the, the well-being policy, the yeah. well-being budget, as yeah. being a kind of yeah. philosophical core. Do you think that's yeah? I a think fair that's, that is fair. You know, um, as as much as you know, these things might sound a bit a bit dry. Moving away from uh, the principle that we've had internationally, where we report on our economic progress without much regard to whether or not that's been at the expense of the well-being of your people and your environment uh, has huge shortcomings and we're pushing hard against that. So we're developing set of indicators that give us a real sense of how well we're doing um, and then translating that into the way we drive our budgets. Now, if we do that and we plan to, we will be the first in the world uh, the OECD has called for it for some time, and there's huge interest in what we're trying to do here in New Zealand. Not, a, not as far as I understand to the extent that we're gross, looking to gross do it. Gross national happiness. Gross national happiness, yes, has been bandied around for a while as, as these individual measures, but what we're trying to do is embed it in the way we develop policy and right. the way we develop budgets. Right. And it, the criticism will be that so it sounds all very nice, but it's airy fairy. But Look, how, how is it? We need to prove it. We need to prove it. Well, it's it's not in the sense that it'll change the way we make policy decisions. So, but I accept proof is in the pudding. Um, on the one of the issues that's beleaguered you slightly recently is this um, Labour-led government question. I just, I honestly, <laughs> I laugh because it's You're so. You're going to say it's semantic. I just, it feels trivial to me. Okay, but here's why it's not trivial. Okay, go ahead, make your case. Because. It manifestly is a Labour-led government. Yeah. Okay. And so... It's, That's why I see we, this we, is trivial. Right. But then you seem unwilling to now call it a Labour-led government. It's a coalition government. I call it, it what it lab- is. But it's a Labour-led government. You just I'm, accept I'm the Labour... Yeah, I'm the Labour leader. We are the largest party in a coalition government. government. And so what it seems like <laughs> is it seems like there's the, the idea of there being this kind of un, unwieldy power when the form of the deputy prime minister who just doesn't because he doesn't like the sound of it it's almost because it's trivial and petty that it takes on this meaning if you will you know? i don't give it that much thought to be honest right but it's a labor government isn't it yeah well we're the biggest party we wouldn't be there without the votes that we bring but equally <laughs> but equally i've got to be fair we wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the two parties who stand near the side of us yeah, supporting yeah, yeah. us too but, but my point is it takes on this sort of feeling like some kind of sorcery oh, like my, if you say labor-led government is, then something will burst no out and of course and that's ridiculous my point is I actually don't think people care <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. and so therefore that translates into me not particularly caring either um, so on another issue facing this Labour-led government um, do the um, something um, that absolutely isn't trivial to see, put, you, to, to see I'm not affairs. correcting you that shows me how much I care about this say Labour-led government Labour-led government <laughs> <laughs> and look Whoa. nothing has happened <laughs> Um, 
Oh dear. As I say, this is the current Prime Minister of New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, much less trivial. Uh, the the in the world. Yes. A couple of things that yeah. have that have that have been in international headlines, especially lately. There's a Saudi journalist who yes. may have been seems likely to have been murdered in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Mm. We've had the Head of Interpol mm. um, being uh, going missing in China yeah. and then resigning mysteriously, various other things, yeah. a sense of Russian impunity and so on. And there has been commentary, some quite compelling commentary written that this reflects a lack of leadership in the world in terms of these are the sorts of things that wouldn't happen if you had a strong strong leadership coming from Washington DC. Mm. Does that yeah sound persuasive to you? Yeah, look, I think. If I could speak more more broadly rather than around just some individual cases, you know, coming for one thing I came away from the, the UN General Assembly feeling really strongly is actually there is a huge push and sentiment and support of uh, maintaining the order that we have all fought for and tried to strengthen for so long. Um, that, you know, New Zealand in particular, we sat around the table when the United Nations was first formed and made the argument around us buying into um, uh, a set of norms, um, you know, a set of practices uh, country to country, not just between government, but on behalf of our citizens around human rights. And we've been utterly consistent in that regard. There is a call for the reinforcement of those from a number of countries. And so I don't think we should discount the fact that that, that still exists, um, regardless of what might be having it, happening at a foreign policy level from one individual country or not. So maybe we just need to be a bit louder. Uh, New Zealand has always been loud, I'd like to think, but we need to seek that upholding of those rules and norms now more than ever. We need to do it more than ever because there is a vacuum a bit, some vacuum there. Well, I think that there has been, you know, there has been some challenge to those rules and norms. You know, trade is an obvious example. You know, let's call it what it is. You know, there's been, uh, there's been a bit of a backing away from the WTO. There's been a tit-for-tat trade war. Um, and we need to uphold the principles that we all signed up to. And so that's the position we take on that as much as we do on human rights. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.